Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Great, great. Who goes to the Canfield? I'm just curious. Who all like is in, into the Canfield Fair here? Yeah. Who would never be seen dead there? Okay. Yeah. About 50-50. That's the way I feel too. I'm kind of torn. Good morning. We are finishing up a seven-part series called Disciple Today. Today I'm going to try to kind of go to the very beginning, catch you up really quickly, and then land this plane. And then we're our, we are going to take communion together. <clears throat> And hopefully we will leave today with a, with a little bit of a different view of how to live our lives, especially if you would consider yourself like a disciple of Jesus. And if you're not, if you're not a, a Jesus person or you're still trying to figure it all out, uh, this is a great day to be here because you're going to get a lot, of, a lot of content all at one time. And maybe something you hear, something you see today will give you a renewed interest and maybe even a renewed hope in the fact that there is a Savior who loves you and came to this earth, and actually died and paid for your sins. And not just so you could be a better person, but so that you could have a relationship with your Heavenly Father. Now, we started this series by saying that Christians and Christianity has a little bit of a, like a branding problem, right? That if you pay attention to what the world or what culture is saying about the church and Christianity, the summary was a bit like this. So what we said the first year. Our summary is this. We're viewed as judgmental, homophobic, moralists who think that we're the only ones going to heaven, and we secretly relish the fact that everybody else is going to hell. Let me read that again. <clears throat> we are viewed, you are viewed, there are people who look at us and say, I can sum the whole thing up this way. They're judgmental, homophobic, moralists who think they're the only ones going to heaven, and they secretly relish the fact that everybody else is going to hell. And we said from the very beginning that part of the problem that we have is, the term, is a terminology problem, that we're known as Christians, that we call ourselves Christians. And maybe your whole life you talked about being a Christian, or somebody invited you to become a Christian, or you prayed a, prayed a prayer to become a Christian. And we discovered in those early weeks that the term Christian or Christianity only appears three times in the whole Bible. And the term was actually a derogatory term that non-Jesus followers used to describe Jesus followers. Therefore, the term Christian isn't defined anywhere in the Bible, which means you can be a Christian and do just about anything. You can be a Christian and believe just about anything. There are Christians on both sides of every single political issue, every single social issue. Christians go to war with each other. Christians vote against each other. So no wonder we have a, a branding problem. The term we call ourselves isn't even defined for us. So we've defined it any way we want. But as we looked at the Gospels, uh, the accounts of Jesus' life, we see that Jesus didn't refer to his followers as Christians. That came much later. He referred to his followers as disciples. And that's kind of scary, because disciple is very narrowly defined. And if you you decide to go with with that term over Christian, there's no doubt about how you are to live your life, and especially how you're to treat other people. When Jesus gathered his followers at, at the very end, after he had, he had you know, taught, told parables, preached sermons, performed miracles for you know, two and a half, three years, he gathered his closest followers together in a room, 
where they shared their last Passover, and he began to say, okay, this is it. This is the last time I have any opportunity to say anything to you. And he boiled his whole ministry down to this, he said, in John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. So there's our word, disciples, followers, learners, those who have signed on with me. By this one thing, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. If you love one another, he said. I want people to identify you and describe you as a follower of me based on one thing only, the way you treat each other and the way you treat other people. And one day Jesus was teaching and some people came to him and they had somewhat of a a trick question. People were always trying to trick Jesus with questions. And Jesus was really smart. Sometimes Jesus wouldn't even answer their, their questions because he knew the intent of their question. But on this particular occasion, they, they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And they had an answer in mind because of the, the traditions of the elders. They had an answer for their question. They wanted to know how Jesus would answer the question. What's the greatest? What's the most important law? There were over 600 different laws from the Old Testament. Jesus, what's the most important law? And many of you remember it, his answer. He answered, he said in Matthew 22, 37, 38, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And before they could raise their hands and ask another question, he said, and the second is like it. And they're saying, wait, wait, we just asked for one, right? He said, yeah, but I can't give you just one. I got to give you two. Because the second is just like it which means the second is as important as the first one. Or the second one goes with the first one. Or, the, or don't try to do the first one without doing the second one. Matthew twenty two thirty nine, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> and before they could raise their hands and ask another question, Jesus said one of the most important things I think he ever said. In fact, 25 years later, the Apostle Paul would write specifically about what Jesus said next. 30 or 40 years later, the Apostle John would write specifically about what Jesus said next. Listen to this. Matthew twenty two forty. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law, all 613, all the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not do things you shalt not do. You know, those thou shalt obey thy parents. Then all the things that will be added later by the teachers in the New Testament. Do your work as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Women, submit to your husbands. All the teachings of the prophets. All the teachings of the law. All the instructions. All the exhortations that would follow hang on these two commandments. Do you know what that means? It means that every time we pick up our Bible, every time we teach a sermon or teach a lesson, every time we read the Bible to find out what does it say about this, what does it say about them, what does it say about the issue, what does it say about that group, what does it say about my wife, what does it say about my husband, what does it say about raising children, what does it say about my ethics, what does it say about my morality, what does it say about sex, what does it say about anything? Jesus said to make sure you look at all of that through the filter of Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying, don't you dare use my law to unnecessarily hurt or disenfranchise people. Because all the law and the prophets hang are filtered through these two commandments. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Last week we read Romans 13.8. It says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt. The continuing debt. You never pay this debt off to love one another. This brought us to this big idea, this big question. If I have a continuing debt to love others, what does love require of me? In other words, if the big idea is people are going to know if I'm a Jesus follower by how I treat other people, if the whole idea is that every thou shalt and thou shalt not is to be viewed through the filter of love, God, and love your neighbor, then I need to ask the question every single day of my husband, my wife, my children, the people I work for, what does love require of me? And that's a game changer. For many of you who grew up in the church like I did, this, this is a game changer. Because my inclination is to look at the commands and to forget the intent of the commander. Right? I'm wired to pick up my Bible and say, well, you ought to and you have to and look what it says right here. And Jesus says that before you do that, you've got to ask this question. What does love require of you? Because the greatest commandment is to love God. And love your neighbor. So what does love require of me right now? Now I want to, in the next few minutes, try to explain how, just how brilliant this is. How brilliant it was for Jesus who had just, he just had a handful of followers, right? He had no, no real leverage. He's kind of sort of in the armpit of the Roman Empire. He could have said anything he wanted to say. And yet this was the message he left us with. I mean, there's so many things he could have said. By this, all men will know that you're my follower, if, you mean, you fill in the blank there. But the brilliance of what Jesus said is actually found in our own personal experience. Here's what I mean. There are two categories of people that have influenced your life profoundly. There are two categories of people that have made you the father that you are. There are two categories of people who have made you the wife that you are today. There are two categories of people that have set you up for, to be successful or not to be successful. And the interesting thing is this. Those, these two categories of people did not influence you deeply because of what they believed. It wasn't even whether or not they were Christian. It wasn't whether or not they were religious or they were even church people. The two categories of people that have profoundly influenced you, influenced who you are today, are those who hurt you and those who loved you. Those who hurt you deeply and those who loved you profoundly. If you find yourself in counseling because you bump up against something you can't get through, a good counselor takes you right here. And you know what's confusing about this? Many of you, many in our culture, many in our country have been hurt deeply by people who have accurate theology. Have been hurt deeply by people who believed all the right things. We're hurt deeply by people who never missed a Sunday in church. We're hurt deeply by people who knew every chapter or verse for every sin you ever committed. And maybe you were hurt deeply by, maybe you were hurt deeply by people who from the outside looked like fine, upstanding citizens, but behind the scenes just took the life out of you, damaged your soul, set you up for experience that has been so painful or so difficult that you would say, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm limping through life. I'm constantly trying to compensate. Not for someone's theology. Not for whether or not they were Christians or believed the Bible, but because I was hurt so deeply. I mean, in, 
In prison, there are pastors and priests with impeccable theology who hurt children. And some of those children are adults today, and they're not impacted by that man's theology, but by the way the man treated them. On the flip side, some of you have had an ex- just have an extraordinary outlook on life with extraordinary potential because somebody loved you so deeply. And you know what? Maybe their, maybe their theology wasn't all that sophisticated. And they weren't able to find all the chapters and the verses. And they couldn't tell you all the stories. They, they may not have been that consistent in church, but they gave you something that set you up for success that goes beyond theology because they loved you so deeply. And it may have been a parent, a coach, a principal, a teacher, you know, grandma, grandpa, somebody who just came alongside you in a small group, somebody who showed up in your mid-20s and just kind of poured into you. And for the first time in your life, you experienced this unconditional love. When you tell your story, you tell a story of hurt, and you tell a story of love. This is why what Jesus said is so profound. And it's why it's so important that those of us who say we are followers get this, because this is our best play. This is our greatest opportunity. But somewhere along the way, and we don't have enough time to explain it, and it's really no mystery how it happened or when it happened, there was a shift from behave to believe. When a church first started, it was all about how you love. Over time, it became about what you believe. And understand, if we would... If we would simply do what Jesus did instead of arguing about what he said, the world would change, right? The reputation of Christ's followers would change. The influence of the church would change. Because believe is easy. It requires almost nothing. Behave requires us to die to ourselves. In some cases, it requires a brand new worldview. I mean, come on. You know... (laughs) How much time and energy and publishing and time spent typing on a, on a keyboard has been spent around people who say they follow Jesus, arguing with each other about exactly what Jesus meant by what Jesus said. In the beginning, it wasn't that way. It was simple. It was love one another. It was constantly going back to the question, what does love require of me? It's brilliant because Jesus knew the heart of people. Over and over in the scripture, Jesus knew the heart of people. And every time Jesus interacted with someone, Jesus interacted with them based on their story. And we've all had this experience. You don't like someone, they get on your nerves, they're just irritating people, and then you hear their story and your heart changes, doesn't it? Yeah? Imagine being Jesus. Imagine Jesus. Every single time he interacted with an individual, he interacted with his or her story in mind. And he answered the question in every conversation, what does love require of me right now? Do you know why Jesus seemed so inconsistent at times? Do you know why Jesus at times was so fierce with one group and so compassionate with another group? Like one time, to a rich, rich guy, he said, you're going to have to sell everything to get right and follow me. To another rich guy, he said, you're very, very close to the kingdom. Wait, why didn't he tell him to sell everything? Because they're two different people, with two different stories, two different hearts. So we can't have a list of verses that we throw at every single person. We have to look at their story and ask the question, in light of who I am, 
And in light of who they are, light of what they've been through, what does love require of me? Could you imagine what would happen in our nation if all of us, all of those who are Jesus followers would put down all our weapons and all our objections and all our theological peculiarities and decide, you know what? I'm simply going to ask the question, what does love require of me? Because if you would like to see people transformed, if you would like to influence their future, you basically have two options. You can hurt them deeply, or you can love them profoundly. You can hurt them deeply, or you can love them profoundly. It's not what you believe, it's how you treat them. So Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my followers. How you treat one another. So I'm going to give you kind of three statements kind of to anchor this idea. Now, if you attend our church or you've been here for any length of time, this is really what we talk about a lot. Every time we open a scripture, every time we look at what Jesus says, every time we look at what the Apostle Paul teaches, every time we look at an Old Testament narrative, we're asking the question, how do we live this out? So I want to take it out of kind of the realm of purely theoretical and, uh, you know, what does love require of me? And I want to give you three statements. Three handles as we ask the question of how do we get better at not simply believing right things, but treating people in a way that heals their hurts and loves them towards our Savior. What does love require of you? Here are the three statements. Number one, don't do anything that will hurt you. Number two, don't do anything that will hurt someone else. And number three, don't be mastered by anything. What does love require of you. Number one, love requires that you don't do anything that hurts you. Why? Because your heavenly Father loves you. And you can't do anything to you that doesn't hurt Him any more than my children can do anything to themselves that doesn't hurt me. My children cannot hurt themselves without hurting me. Why? Because I love them. Do you know what love requires of you? Love requires that you never make a moral decision, a sexual decision, an ethical decision, a relational decision, a professional decision that hurts you. Because when you hurt you, you hurt the ones that love you the most. You say, well, that's just between me and me. No, it's never just between you and you. Because you're loved. It's not just your life. It's not just your world. It's not just your reputation. Your Heavenly Father loves you, and love requires that you respond to His love by taking care of you. What does love require of you? Number two, it requires that you don't do anything to hurt anyone else. And I'm not talking about serving in the military or or law enforcement or anything like that, those sorts of things. I'm talking about relationships. I'm talking about that you just decide, I'm just not going to do or say anything that hurts another person. And here's why. Because every person you meet is someone that your Heavenly Father sent His Son to die for. Everyone you interact with is someone that God loves as much as He loves you. Everyone you ever speak to, even the people you, that just can't stand you, are people for whom Christ died. And I realize this is tricky. In fact, we talk about this as much as we talk about anything here. Because this, this is tricky because it involves maybe confrontation. This maybe involves confession. Confrontation and confession hurt. 
But sometimes loving the way you need to love is like taking out a scalpel. But it's never like taking out a knife. Right? One heals, one hurts. You know what love requires of you? That you just decide once and for all the filter through which my words and my actions will be. I'm not going to do anything to hurt, betray, deceive, groom, tempt, abuse, or hurt another person. Number three, love requires that you not be mastered by anything. You know why? Because whenever you're mastered by something, it will keep you from loving someone. Whenever you're mastered by something, it will keep you from loving someone. No one should have to compete with your alcohol. No one should have to compete with your porn. No one should have to compete with your prescription drug addiction. No one should have to compete with your anger. No one should have to compete with your temper. No one should have to compete with your greed. No, no one should have to compete with your phone. No one should, should have to compete with anything that masters you. Refuse to be mastered by anything. Because God's your master. You know what love requires of you? Love requires that you get rid of anything in your life that competes with his lordship in your life. Anything. Because you cannot love as long as you're mastered. So don't do anything that hurts you. Don't do anything that hurts someone else. Be mastered by nothing. Now, as I go through this list, you know what some of you have just done? Some of you had just thought of other people. I'm glad my husband's here to listen to this message. I'm calling my college son to ask him to listen to this one a couple times. Here's the thing. Isn't that the perspective that has caused you to be hurt the most by people who claim to be Christians? What if we just decided we'll let God take care of them? And we decided I'm not, I'm not going to hurt me. And whatever it takes to get into a place where I'm not hurting me any longer, I'm going to go there, I'm going to get counseling, I'm going to get help, I'm going to confess, I'm going to break these habits, I'm not going to do anything to hurt anyone else any longer, and where I have, I'm going to confess, and where I'm hurting them and they don't even know it, I'm going to confess. And it's going to be a bit painful, but it's going to lead to healing, and I'm going to confront some people because I have not loved them and it's painful and it's challenging, but it's, it's not a knife, it's a scalpel. And I'm not going to continue to hurt them by remaining silent. And I'm not going to be mastered by anything. And let God take care of them. Here's what I think Jesus was getting at, and here's what we've lost sight of. That when his followers, when the church uses anything other than love, we go backwards, not forwards. And we, my friends, are going backwards in culture. We have lost and are losing our influence in the world. Why? Because many, many decades ago, when the church got into power, and when the church had the control, and when the church had the money, when the church had the influence, and when the church had the ability to persuade politics, when the church had the ability to influence legislation, we abandoned love. And we began to use something else. And on that day, whenever that happened, we began to lose. See, it wasn't always that way. Once upon a time, there were a handful of Jesus followers. And all they had was love one another. Right? But they lived out this one simple idea. What if we love one another? 
What if we never get hung up on the commands and, or, or, or lose sight of the intent of the commander? What if we love one another is the filter through which we interpret all the Old Testament and all of this new information that's beginning to roll in from the Apostle Paul and others who are writing? And we know from history, that's how the West was won. That's how culture was influenced. That's how paganism that we can't even imagine was turned upside down. Not because this small group used power and influence and status and politics and esteem and wealth, but because they used the only thing they had, love one another. Nobody felt coerced because there was no way to coerce people. People were drawn to the edge, right? Come and see. No one's going to push you in. No one's going to push you away. No one's going to push you in from behind, right? No one's going to come drag you in. Just come and see. Come, come watch us love. And we, we know that people felt guilty, but they didn't feel condemned. They felt guilty because they looked at marriages that were so profoundly different than theirs. They looked at relationships that were, that were different. They discovered a work ethic that was profoundly different. And they saw a richness of relationship and such, such incredible generosity. It was, it was completely different. And the pagans in the first century, we know, felt guilty because they knew they weren't as good as those people. But somehow, they didn't feel condemned. And if that ever characterizes the church in the United States of America, again, there will be transformation like we can't even imagine. But the moment we abandon love, we will go backwards. And as much as I'd like to, you cannot preach people into loving Jesus. You cannot preach people into loving each other. You cannot preach people out of habits. You can't preach people out of addiction. You can't legislate them out of habits. You can't legislate them out of sin. You can't legislate them out of addiction. You can't legislate a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. None of that happens through preaching or political means or legislation. It only happens when it is seen and it's so attractive that it's almost irresistible. So maybe we'll be the people. Maybe we'll be the beginning of a generation to ask the question, what does love require of me? And maybe it could be said of us, it was, as it was for the first century Christians, that by this everyone will know that we are his disciples because we love one another, because we love the people of the world. As we finish up the series, we're going to take communion together. If those passing out the elements would begin doing that. Just hang on to the elements for a minute after you get them. We'll take them together. First Corinthians 11.33, Paul writes these words about how we should practice communion. He writes, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. You should all eat together. And the point isn't whether you use wine or juice or whether you pass communion out or come forward. The point is, we eat together at the level foot of the cross. The haves with the have-nots, the, the poor next to the rich, the uneducated with the educated, the white next to the black, the older generation with the younger generation. 
not just as people who happen to, attain, happen to attend the same church on the same weekend, but as friends sharing the same table together. Because at this table, there's no us and them. There's only us, people deeply loved and all in need of grace. The table has been set, and in a moment, we're going to share this meal together. But before that happens, we have to check our hearts. If you feel like you're not willing to eat together or next to those people, whoever those people might be, this table's not really for you. There are plenty of places to eat in our world, but this table isn't it for you today. But if you're not okay and you know it, and you're willing to eat with somebody else who's not doing okay, if you know you need a Savior and you know that Savior is Jesus, then this table is for you. And here's what's really cool about this. When we practice communion, we're not just remembering or looking back, but we're also looking ahead. When Jesus talked about heaven, he would often describe it using the image of a meal, a great feast. Nobody earns this meal. You just come home and receive it. When prodigals come home, they're not just welcome. There's always a meal. So this meal is just a little taste of the great feast to come. This meal is just a little bit of practice for that great party that Jesus throws for sinners who don't deserve it. So as we take communion, we remember all Jesus gave up for us. And we don't just look back, we don't just examine our hearts, we do those things, but we also look ahead to that one day when we, as all of us, as the prodigals that we are, come home. As Rich was talking about, we see Jesus with that that beaming smile on his face as he says to us, who's ready to eat? Partake when you're ready, and I'll pray. Jesus, we don't, we don't deserve this meal, yet you still invite us to come. So we come together as one community to your great table of grace. Lord, as we take these elements, we remember what you did. We confess all the ways we're, we're part of the problems of our world. And we ask that you would help us to live with the question, what does love require of me? And Lord, we boldly receive this amazing grace you offer. On that cross, your body and your blood were given for us that we might be welcomed home to the greatest meal the universe has ever known. So we thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray this. And everybody said, amen. The ministry team is going to come up front here. Hang on just a second. Don't start moving. The ministry team is going to come up front here. And if you would like prayer, if you need a, a healing Uh, We have seen miraculous healings here, so come forward. If you need the favor of God in your life, come get prayed for. If you're part of a relationship that needs supernatural intervention, today is the day to begin to place those things on the altar before God. He's a God who hears. He's a good Father who loves you. If you don't want prayer today, you're free to go. Enjoy this beautiful